Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Good morning, church. And happy Mother's Day, mothers. Welcome to all of you that are here and mothers. Uh, A special happy Mother's Day to you. I think the only thing better than baby dedication on Mother's Day is like baptism on Easter. But baby dedication on Mother's Day is pretty sweet. And so if we get to celebrate that toward the end of our service. Well, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Michael. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. And it's great having you here with us to worship together. We're doing a series in the Gospel of Luke. And today we're going to be jumping into Luke chapter 6, which is known as the Sermon on the Plain. Now, I'm sure you've heard of the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew's gospel and his version of this famous teaching, Jesus' most famous teaching. Um, But this is the Sermon on the Plain, which is the version that's in Luke's gospel. So Matthew and Luke, they had different priorities that they were uh, writing about when they selected material and compiled it in their books. And they arranged it for their own purposes. Matthew presents Jesus teaching up on a mountain. Luke presents Jesus teaching on a plane. Both are inspired by the Holy Spirit. Both are completely true. Um, We're not going to worry about uh, those kind of comparison and contrast with the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to let Luke present his material of Jesus teaching on the Sermon on the Plain. And uh, we're going to focus on that account. So we're not going to be doing a whole lot of comparison and contrast between the two. We're going to spend four weeks uh, looking at the Sermon on the Plain, and um, you probably got from Cameron City Group leaders that we'll be uh, trying to do things a little differently during those four weeks, trying to experiment on um, focusing on a particular text of Scripture in the whole for a longer period of time. So hopefully that'll work out well for you. So today we're going to look at Luke's version of the Beatitudes. In the show uh, Stranger Things, if you all may know the show Stranger Things, uh, there's this alternate reality that uh, the show, you know, takes you into. And this alternate reality exists alongside the regular reality. But it's different. So the, the difference in the show, they call it the upside down. So you have like the normal life, the regular life with all these kids and their regular life. But they're in this other reality is this thing called the upside down. And the upside down is an alternate reality that exists alongside their reality. And in this upside down reality, there's bizarre creatures that like to abduct and kill children and terrorize the neighborhood. So that's what uh, Stranger Things is about. So uh, you have the kid that gets abducted, Will Byers. Uh, if you all seen the show, Will Byers. I hope I'm not spoiling anything uh, for anybody here. But Will Byers is this kid that gets abducted by one of the creatures from the upside down. And so... <clears throat> People from their world need to try to find some access into the upside down to rescue this kid. Um, The kingdom of God is kind of like that. Not exactly, (laughs) mind you. (laughs) But the kingdom of God is kind of like that, except we're the ones in the upside down, right? We're the ones that live in this alternate reality that's broken and sinful and wicked, uh, whereas the kingdom of God is the normal world. That's the real world. That's the world as God created it. Uh, where, where everything is in its rightly ordered place. And we are the ones in the upside down 
And Jesus has crossed into our reality to rescue us from it. So Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Plain, and not really everywhere, but Jesus' teaching um, in the Sermon on the Plain especially focuses on the kingdom of God. And so he's telling us what the real world is like. He's telling us what the reality of God's kingdom is like the way it was meant to be. And there's going to be tension for us as we live in the upside down, living as citizens of the kingdom of God in our version of the upside down. So in Luke's uh, Sermon on the Plain here, he's going to begin with um, eight statements. So there's four blessings and four woes. And these eight statements match up uh, with, they match up with one another. So you have four blessings and four woes, and they, they, uh, they parallel one another. And all of them feature some divine reversal. Some Jesus, something Jesus says, this is your experience, but here is the reality behind that experience. Now, uh, let me give you a heads up. Fancy theology word headed your way right now. Coming your way, fancy theology word, and it's eschatology. Or eschatological. That's uh, eschatological. That's six syllables. So you can write that down and impress your friends. Eschatological. I use that word because the blessings and the woes are eschatological. The word eschatology refers to the last things, like the return of Christ, uh, judgment day, heaven and hell, eternity, those sort of things. And so Jesus is talking eschatologically. He's speaking of an experience now and how it corresponds with the last things, with the way things will be in eternity. So he's kind of forecasting into the future what the kingdom of God is like when it comes in its fullness. So what Jesus is saying is that the way we experience things now will be different in the future kingdom. The future kingdom is different when we're with him in eternity. So whenever Jesus returns, the fullness of his kingdom will come with him where Jesus will turn everything around and put everything back in order the way it's supposed to be. So for now... Jesus' followers are citizens of that kingdom, right? We're citizens of the kingdom to come, but we live in this reality. And so we cope with the tension of being citizens of the kingdom to come while living in this upside-down reality now of a fallen world. The two list, blessing list and a woe list, they follow a pattern, a three-plus-one pattern. So there's three short ones. And a long one. Three more short ones and another long one. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to deal with the three short ones as a unit and then the long one and then the three short ones and then the long one. So we'll follow that pattern through the message today. There's a couple of challenges in interpreting the Sermon on the Plain. And I want to acknowledge them here just to tell you I'm walking a tightrope. One challenge is to absolutize it, which means to... To, to read what Jesus is saying and take it as an absolutely literal way. To, for it to be like, it's exactly just the way it reads. And to take it over, uh, overly literal. More literal than Jesus intended. That's, that's one challenge that we don't want to do. The other one is to overqualify it. To say like, well, Jesus doesn't mean this. In the most literal way, therefore, let's qualify and nuance to where it has no power left to challenge us in any way. We want to try to avoid both of those things. We want to let the impact, the force of Jesus' words hit us and land on us 
while also recognizing that Jesus uses hyperbole at times, right? He, he, he speaks in exaggeration to make a point. So we're going to avoid both of those, and we're going to try to let God's Word challenge, encourage, convict us as we read this. So let's dig in. We're going to start with the blessings, present and future blessings. And we'll be here in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 20. Verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. Note that. He's speaking to his disciples. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. We'll pause here. Verse 20 has an important detail, and I've mentioned it as we went along. And that detail is this. In the verses that preceded what we just read, Jesus had gone up on a mountain to pray, prayed all night. He selected 12 disciples. He designated them as apostles. Then he came down. He was greeted by large crowds, and he healed some, and he cast out demons and so forth, and he taught them. And then here it says he spoke to his disciples. So there's a large crowd that's listening in. They're eavesdropping, dropping eaves, as the Samwise Gamgee would say. Um, random movie reference, don't worry about it. Um, so, so you have the crowd that's eavesdropping, but Jesus is speaking to his followers. And it's important that we get that, and that will become clear as we go through this. So in these, in these three ver- or two verses, Jesus identifies three real-life trials. Three real-life difficulties that his followers may go through as citizens of the kingdom. Speaking to his disciples, Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor. So he's teaching Christians who may experience poverty in this life. And he's teaching them to hope in God. He's not speaking about any old person out there who happens to be poor. He's speaking to Christians. He's speaking to his followers who are poor. Verse 20 says he's speaking to his disciples. So Jesus is not teaching that every poor person is blessed. Or that all hungry people automatically go to heaven. That there's some spiritual blessing in their poverty or in their hunger or in their trial. Here's why I I, want to pause and, and point this out. It's common for people to misinterpret Jesus' words here and to ascribe some moral value to poverty, as though being poor in and of itself, regardless, irrespective of your relationship to Jesus, being poor is itself a spiritual blessing, as though that is a virtue in itself. And that's, that's not true. Poverty is a trial, but it is morally neutral. There is no inherent value, uh, spiritually speaking, with being poor or not poor. Same thing with hunger. Hunger is a trial. It's a challenge. It's a difficulty. But there is no inherent virtue in being hungry for people that, that don't know Jesus. There's no ethical component. It's just a condition. I've heard this sentiment uh, from time to time, and um, I don't... I don't it's, it's not, uh, I don't really run into it in our church. 
um, but it is out there, and I think we, we hear things like this, and they, they influence us, and I want to point it out and, and correct it here. And the sentiment that I hear from time to time, um, I, I, I saw it in an article recently when I looked this up, to, it kind of captured it well, and the sentiment says, the face of the poor is the face of Jesus. It was a, I read this particular one from a Catholic blog. Um, I think it was a cardinal or bishop or somebody that wrote this blog and said, the face of the poor is the face of Jesus. Now, what they're implying by that is that any poor person that you encounter who's poor, not, not a Christian necessarily, but just anybody who happens to be poor, that person has some, some spiritual life within them because of their poverty. It's almost like the poverty itself has a spiritual value or, or it's virtuous or there's, there's some grace of God in that thing because they're poor. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Now, that sentiment sounds compassionate, right? And, of course, Christians are called to be compassionate. That's a virtue. That is a good thing. And what it does is it turns that compassion into something that, that, it, that Jesus does not intend, Jesus is not saying there's something saving. There's, not, uh, there's some, some grace or merit within that trial for that person. He's speaking of Christians enduring the trial of poverty. He's not speaking generally about anybody who is poor. So the sentiment tugs at the heartstrings, but it dulls the mind. And that's why I don't find it very helpful. It, it, it cleverly uses biblical language, biblical, biblical themes, and it draws upon the virtue of compassion and caring for the poor to redefine what Jesus' mission is and to redefine Jesus himself in purely economic terms. But what Jesus is dealing with, he's dealing with the soul, and he's, he's calling his followers to obey him and to trust in God in the midst of a trial. So he's not making a statement about all poor people here. He's making a statement about the pious poor. And I think like whenever we see the poor in um, the Sermon on the Plain, and, and it's, a, it's a rule of thumb whenever you see this in the Gospel of Luke, oftentimes he's referring to those who are Christians, which you would call the pious poor, believing poor. So Jesus is not declaring all poor people inherit the kingdom of God. If you read it at face value, literally that's what it reads like, right? Jesus is not saying literally all poor people, by virtue of their poverty, inherit the kingdom of God. He's not saying that. Jesus speaking to his disciples, saying, blessed are you who are poor, for you shall inherit the kingdom of God. So he's encouraging poor Christians by reminding them to hope in God because they are inheriting a kingdom. So Jesus is preparing Christians for trial, preparing Christians for a trial, a particular kind of trial, a trial, and that's being deprived, being poor, being hungry, suffering, being uh, sad or depressed, being, um, being discouraged. And he's, he's preparing them for the hard road of discipleship and calling them to suffer faithfully as citizens of the kingdom. So for, for people in that circumstance, Jesus is calling them, saying, don't give in to despair. You can endure these trials without giving up hope. Jesus is acknowledging their pain. He's saying, I see your pain. I see your suffering. I see your needs. I know this is hard. I care about your suffering. And I am with you through all of it. So take courage. This trial won't last forever. 
This trial does not go on forever. It's a temporary condition. But you've got a kingdom coming your way. You've, you've inherited something. Soon enough, you'll be home. So trust in God. Set your hope in God and in his kingdom. And God will turn your trials of poverty and hunger and sadness into blessings. That's the divine reversal. The divine reversal is people experience, his followers, Christians experience a trial of poverty, of hunger, of depression or sadness. He says, hey, that's, this is not the way things will always be. He's saying, look ahead, look to the future, anticipate what God will do in the future. When God makes everything right, when everything sad comes untrue. Now, there is another layer to Jesus' teaching. <clears throat> another layer of Jesus' teaching, and that is poverty and sadness and hunger correspond with spiritual qualities of his followers. So the physical condition of being poor, of being hungry, of being sad, those correspond to spiritual qualities of the kingdom of God. Now, if we compare Luke's version to Matthew's version, Matthew's version makes it more plain. And we're probably more familiar with Matthew's version, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew connects some of these dots for us to, to show and to highlight the spiritual meaning that Jesus is getting at. So what does Matthew say? Luke says, blessed are you disciples who are poor. Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. They're saying the same thing. Do you see that? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are hungry for righteousness. That's what Matthew's version says. Blessed are those who mourn. And the implication there is he referring to a mourning over sin or mourning over the state of a fallen world, a broken world. Luke's version is more subtle. Luke says, blessed are you who are poor period. Blessed are you who are hungry, period. Blessed are you who weep. So Matthew's account is more lofty. You see, he, he, he pulls out the spiritual dimensions. It's, Matthew's account is elevated. It's transcendent. Whereas Luke's account is more earthy. Luke's account is raw and gritty. He really, really makes you feel the impact of what poverty is like for somebody. Both are conveying the same idea. The same basic idea, that every Christian, every citizen of the kingdom of God is defined by these spiritual qualities. They're defined by humility, by a hatred for sin, by a hunger for righteousness. Now, these first three blessings that we just looked at, they're about suffering as Christians. But the last one, the longer one in the blessing list, it's about suffering for Christ. So the first three are suffering as Christians. The last one is suffering for Christ. It's about how the world receives and reacts to the person who is living publicly as a citizen of God's kingdom. So let's look at verses 22 and 23. Verse 22, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they revile you, and when they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, suffering for Christ. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. 
So have you ever been hated for being a Christian? Now, we've, a lot of us have been hated. I mean, that's just part of life, right? I mean, not everybody's going to like you. Not everybody's going to think you're great. Somebody in this world's going to hate you. But have you ever been hated for being a Christian? Have you ever been excluded or reviled because you're a faithful follower of Jesus? Has anybody spurned your name as evil on account of Jesus? Because you say and believe Christian things. Yeah. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus is not saying that uh, we should intentionally make trouble so that we can claim persecution points, right? <laughs> like you go out there and you do something just careless, reckless, and rude, and then people get mad at you for it, and then you get to congratulate yourself for being persecuted. That's not what Jesus is calling us to do. He's talking about people who are simply obeying Jesus, you know, from the text of Scripture, from a clear conscience, obeying the Lord, and that, that hurts them because they are living as citizens of a kingdom in the upside down. They're living in this, this twisted, weird, distorted world that is hostile to the things of God. So Jesus is talking about ordinary people, ordinary Christians who let their light shine, who don't put it under a bushel, who don't hide their light, but they let their light shine, and people hate them for it. And they're hated not merely for being Christians, but for believing and saying and doing Christian things, for being a consistent follower of Christ. So Christians, we will be hated because we believe in a holy God who tells us how to live and how not to live, and tells us that his wrath is against those who disobey him. Who happens to be everybody? Christians will be hated because we follow Jesus, who was God in the flesh, right? Who became a man, and they hated and excluded and reviled him. And so when they got their hands on God, whenever God became a man, when they could, they could physically touch him, they arrested him and beat him and tortured him, and they nailed his hands and feet to a cross and hung him there until he died. And then when he rose from the dead, they hated him even more <laughs> because he ignited a movement that continues to this day, and it's, it is his victory that is seen in his resurrection. Now, what did Jesus say? That same Jesus, he said, no servant, which is us, no servant is above his master. We're not above Jesus. We're not, we're not above or beyond. We're not better than him in any way. We should expect to be treated no better than Jesus. He said, no servant is above his master. If they call the master Beelzebul, how much more his followers? Now, Jesus says this in Luke 21, verse 17. We'll see this um, later on in the series. Jesus said, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. I hope that's a hyperbole. <laughs> I hope he doesn't mean every single person. But he's but he's used he's speaking in exaggerated terms so we feel the impact of what he's saying. You'll be hated by all. I mean, like that's something that we should expect. That's normal for Christians, is that we will be hated for his sake. Now, when that happens, what do you do? Cower in fear, hide in a corner. 
crying, Mom, make it stop. What do you do? Here you go. You rejoice. You rejoice. You, you, you dance a little dance. You, you, you smile. You, 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 you express happiness. Why? Because there is a reward for faithfully suffering, for faithfully enduring that hatred for the sake of Christ. He says, rejoice in that day. He said, rejoice in that day. Like, leap for joy, be, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. So it's, we, can, we can experience and, and express joy now in the day that it happens in anticipation of the fullness of that joy that will come whenever Jesus returns. So the more closely you follow Jesus, the more hate you're going to catch for it. I think, that's, I think we can expect that to be true. But don't let it get you down. That shouldn't, that shouldn't get us down. That should, that should trigger in our hearts rejoicing. Because that means that there is a reward for those who faithfully suffer. Now, if nobody knows you're a Christian, or if you don't act like a Christian then you're not suffering for his namesake when you suffer. So I think there's, there's a couple of things Jesus is saying here. I mean, there's, on the one hand, Jesus is encouraging those who faithfully suffer for Christ, and encouraging them, hey, rejoice, because there's a reward. But I think there's, a, there's another message here where Jesus is coaxing us more out into the open, coaxing us to, to say, hey, like, if you're vocal about your faith, if you share your faith with a coworker or a friend or a family member, they might hate you for it. Any of you all have tried to share the gospel with a friend or family member and they, they got really angry about it? Rejoice. Rejoice. Not that they hated you for it, but because you've got a reward. Jesus will reward you. What is that reward? We don't really know. But Jesus, it's important enough for Jesus to tell us that that could be the basis of our joy in the midst of terrible trials. So I'd say whatever it is, it's got to be good. So whenever you suffer, because you've, you've publicly, faithfully lived out your calling as a Christian, if somebody hates you for that, rejoice. And, and let it coax you out into the open more. Let it, let it embolden you, encourage you, give you courage to be more faithful, more, more vocal. And if you catch a little hate for it, do a little dance. Rejoice. Your reward is great. Those are the blessings. Let's look at the woes. Present and future woes. Verse 24 and 25. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. We'll pause. The blessing list, the first list, was spoken as words of encouragement to his disciples as they go through trials. This woe list now was spoken as a warning against casual Christianity, against false discipleship. So a woe is a state of great sorrow or distress or misery, and it's jarring to read, right? I mean, these things are kind of like, whoa, Jesus, that's intense. It's jarring to read. But this is where we don't want to 
to just, let's not just nuance our way out of what Jesus is saying here. We need to hear what Jesus says and heed his warning. And so he says that those who are rich and full and laughing now have nothing in eternity to look forward to, only emptiness and hunger and weeping. In this life, they've already received all the good things that they're going to get. And only pain awaits them in eternity. Now, that's, that's intense. That's pretty intense. What's he talking about? Jesus identifies common physical blessings that people enjoy, being rich, being well-fed, being happy and laughing. These common physical blessings that can draw them away from the things of God, that can, that can cause them to settle in and to be comfortable here in the upside down. Right here in the, in the world that isn't the real world. Now, the same principle is true here as before. Jesus is not making a universal pronouncement about money as though the amount of dollars in your bank account determines your spiritual condition. Jesus often speaks of the rich as a spiritual condition with, because it's like there's a heart posture that often goes along with the money, Right? So he speaks, often speaks of the rich as a spiritual condition to refer to people who don't think they need God, for people who live and act as though, as though their money can take care of all their needs and they don't need God. They can live their life and ignore God. But if being rich were in itself a sinful thing, then a lot of our heroes of the faith would have been disobedient. We have Abraham, Joseph, David, just to name a few. That would have been great sinners, but the Bible does not speak of them as great sinners because of their, their wealth. They're, they're rich guys. Point being is that it's not a sin to have money. Money is a tool. Money is a tool. And having more of that tool is not necessarily sinful. However, the Bible strongly warns about the dangers of money and the effect that having lots of money can have on your soul. And just in case you were wondering, I would say 99% of us in this room have lots of money, globally and historically speaking. So don't be looking around and be like, that guy over there, he's got a lot of money. He hope he listens up. Now I'm talking to all of us, all right? Every one of us. Money can be sinful if it is gained in a wrong way, and it can, if you have a lot of it, it can affect your spiritual life and tempt you to sin. Because here's the thing, money exposes the heart. I mean, it, it does reveal what's going on in your heart. The way you use money reveals what's really important to you. So money is always a great danger to your soul, and you see that from Genesis to Revelation. It can seduce you into thinking that you are in control of your life. That no matter what bad things come your way, you've got a number in your bank account that can cover that pain. And that's not true. That's not true. Money can buy a lot of things, but it, but it, it can't just take care of every problem. Money can tempt you into feeling self-sufficient, thinking you don't need anything, that you don't need anybody, including God. That's why it is... It is more difficult for a quote-unquote wealthy or rich person, a person who lives a life of luxury and ease, to see their need for God and for them to become Christians. They're hard people to reach sometimes. 
So Jesus is pronouncing a woe on people who are not poor in spirit, rather they're rich in spirit. And I think that's who Jesus is talking to here. He said, woe to you who are rich. I mean, like there's a, a rich in spirit, which often is associated and correlated with, with having a lot of money. People who are selfish, self-sufficient, greedy, ungenerous. They have money and they have a prideful attitude about their money. The kind of materialistic person who spends all their money on themselves. Spending just to spend as a form of entertainment because you got money to blow. The kind of person that sees money as a game. Checking his or her accounts all the time just to watch the numbers go up and down. It's exciting to do that. The kind of person that gets enamored with the status and reputation that having money can bring to you. The kind of person that feels superior to others who have less money and treat people differently based on their perceived income. The kind of person that feels entitled to what he or she has rather than humble, humble and grateful for what they have. The kind of person that continually redefines needs to include an ever-expanding list of luxuries. Now, just hear Jesus' warning. Let, let Jesus' warning land on us, myself included, all of us. The more money you have, the more you live rich in spirit, the greater your danger of spiritual bankruptcy. People who are rich in this way can be spiritually bankrupt, right? And I, like, you don't need me to explain it. You know what I'm talking about. You know the effect that money can have. We've seen it in our culture. We've seen it in our own lives at different times, perhaps. But we know that, that money can deaden your soul. And Jesus says, if, if that's you... All the consolation that you will receive, you've already received it. There's no reward. You've already gotten your reward. Verse 26. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. That's the final woe. And that woe is parallel to the final blessing of the blessing list. In verse 22, and they address the same issue. They address the issue of how, do, how are you perceived in the world you inhabit? So if you're living like a citizen of the kingdom of heaven in the upside down, in the fallen world, then they're going to reject you, revile you, hate you, exclude you, and spurn your name as evil. But if you're living as a citizen of the upside down in the upside down, hey, you're one of us. You're a great dude. We like you. And Jesus says, woe to you if living in the upside down, everybody thinks you're a cool guy. Because that indicates something about your life. That indicates that something is not right. It's a red flag. So the last woe is a warning about being too highly regarded. That's just kind of strange to even read. It's like Jesus saying, hey, be careful about being too highly regarded. When all people speak well of you. I think this one is one of the hardest for modern Christians to handle because we want everybody to like us. 
And a lot of modern Christians think that, well, if I'm doing Christianity the right way, everybody's going to like me. If I'm following Jesus just just the way I would, and I've I'm, I'm got the right amount of compassion, and I'm winsome and loving, and I've got all, the, all those things that j- I'm just like Jesus, then everybody's going to like me, and it's going to go, well, nobody will criticize me or hate me. And Jesus says, hey, if everybody thinks well of you, that's a red flag. And nobody lived like Jesus better than Jesus, and what did they do to him? <laughs> they killed him. So Jesus is saying, like, hey, if you truly live as a citizen of the kingdom in the upside down, it could go hard for you. You could experience trial. And when, it, when you don't, that could be a red flag. It's a strong indicator that you're no different from the world and that the world doesn't see you as distinct. There's nothing uniquely Christian about you. Or... You've only, you've cherry-picked those aspects of Christianity that's most in line with the world, but not the parts of Christianity that would set you at odds with the world in a way that would invite uh, their scorn. So if you look and sound just like the world does, and not enough like the kingdom of God, people will think well of you, and Jesus says, watch out for that. That's a spiritual danger. So that's the theme of all the woes. All four of these woes are about Christians who want to blend in with the world and not set themselves apart in such a way that they would invite um, scorn from the world. So they bury their distinctiveness. They don't suffer at all for being Christians. They live like everybody else, and so generally they're well thought of and things are going great for them. Frankly, I think this is an idol for modern Christians that we want so badly to be loved by the world. We want so badly to have a seat at the cool kids' table for the world to think that we're great, to think like, you know, if, if the, the better they think of me, the more likely, the more people will become Christians and will evangelize the world, and how wonderful will that be? And Jesus is saying that that's, that's just not the way it works. Jesus is warning, woe to you when everyone thinks well of you. Woe to you when you've got a seat at the cool kids' table. Jesus doesn't call us to have a seat at the cool kids' table. And, I mean, hear this. This is freeing. This is freeing for us. He doesn't call us. We're not in charge of how other people react, right? We're not in charge of making them like us. So, like, making sure that you're always liked by the world is not... We're not called to do that. In fact, we're told repeatedly by Jesus himself to expect the opposite. So he doesn't call us to seek respectability among among non-Christians in the world. He calls us to be faithful and obedient to him and to accept whatever suffering would come as a consequence of our faithfulness to obey him. And that is freeing. We're not in charge of Jesus' PR. He can handle his own PR. Jesus doesn't seem to mind at all if the world hates us. So this is where we'll wrap it up. We're called to live as citizens of the kingdom of God, right? Citizens of the world to come. Live now as though the world to come is here. We live in that reality. So living now as citizens of the kingdom, we are going to stand out from the world. And standing out from the world, being distinct from the world may cost us something, but Jesus offers us hope and encouragement. 
He said, hey, if you're, if you're being distinct, if you're being faithful, obedient in the world, and if you catch some heat for it, catch some hate for it, don't sweat it. You're blessed. There's a blessing that awaits you, and it doesn't last forever. And so he offers us this hope and encouragement that the way things are now are not the way things will always be in eternity. But he also offers a warning that if everything is going splendid for you now, that could be a red flag. I'm not saying it always is, but it could be a red flag, and it's something to reflect on. Like, if you're, if you're well-loved and respected by everyone, you could reflect on that. It's like, am I just that likable? Am I just that sweet and cool? Or is there something, am I compromised in some way? Like, reflect on that. Let the, open your heart to the Holy Spirit to, to speak to you about it. It may be an indicator that you're not living as a citizen of the kingdom and that your life looks just like everyone else. So it is an opportunity to to reflect and realign your priorities with the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Our Lord, we uh, thank you for speaking these jarring words that are are hard to handle. And they they catch us off guard. But Jesus, you, you spoke to us about Um, realities that we can't see or taste or touch or feel and we believe by faith that this is true and that this is the way things are and that living obediently and faithfully as citizens of your kingdom there is a blessing even if we encounter suffering as a result and so Lord we pray that you will help us to be countercultural in that way to, to live faithfully for your kingdom Thank you, Jesus, for, for giving us that reassurance and that hope that whatever suffering we encounter in this life as Christians, that there is a blessing that comes with it. And our hope is in the gospel that because you've died and that you've risen again, that we are included in your kingdom. We are citizens of your kingdom, and by faith, we can have hope for eternal blessing and reward because you promised it to us. Help us to cling to those promises. And as we come to the table, we thank you that those of us in Christ, spiritually speaking, do not go away hungry, but that we are filled and satisfied from food from your table. And we thank you, Jesus, for providing it. We worship you and pray these things in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.